first of all, Jollibee actually is more popular than McDonald's in the Philippines. It is an institution, J- Jollibee. <laughs> and I feel like when I- What, is it, what I, does Jollibee mean? Is it the name of the owner or? Like well, their mascot is a bee that's very happy. Is it not? Oh, a jolly bee. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to My So-Called Sustainable Life, a podcast where we compare our personal sustainability lives with our professional one. We share candid conversations, interview guests, and get real about the realities of working in sustainability while also working towards a more just future, all in the name of mitigating our climate anxiety. Sustainable Concordia would like to acknowledge that my so-called sustainable life is recorded on the unceded territory of the Ganyan Gehaga and the Haudenosaunee in Jojage. We are committed to listening to and collaborating with the original stewards of this land. Go to nativeland.ca to find out more about the territories we are on as Turtle Island inhabitants. We'd also like to acknowledge that the physical space we work out of is currently inaccessible and that we are committed to making our programming accessible for everyone in spite of this. Okay, let's get into it. Let's talk about the meat of the issue, microplastics. Yeah. So I'm going to read your bio. I like that it's in first person. Um, Yeah, I didn't know how to say it. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. Okay. I'm one of the few researchers studying microplastics here at Concordia. You studied microplastics at the end of your undergrad, University of Toronto, shout out, where you looked at microplastic pollution in Lake Simcoe. You've since devoted your research career into looking at the effects on organisms and making your research practices more sustainable. You're currently a master's candidate in the biology department and at Concordia, right? (laughs) And a sustainability ambassador for Concordia Sustainability Ambassador Program. Do you have anything to add about that? The thing I wanted to add was going back to what you were saying earlier, Maria was that when I first started with looking at plastics, microplastics, the thing that really drew me into it was my experience with the Philippines. And so we live, or I lived in a coastal region of the province that my grandparents um, grew up in and have settled. And that coastal region, when I was growing up, my first memories of it was it being pristine and super clean and, and nice. And then it kind of started getting industrialized and that town started making more money. But that resulted in the fishing industry going down. And you can see... The difference between um, how it was back then and how polluted it got when the economy started going up, which is a typical story in the Philippines. So now that that coastal region is like that coast that our grandparents like used to fish in and they own a lighthouse there, but now it's so dirty. Like you wouldn't want to be in that water anymore because of how dirty it looks. But that was my initial emotional draw into the issue of of plastics and microplastics was just a kind of easy way to get into that. That's very interesting. I don't know if it's easy. It's very like dreadful, but yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that, Miguel. I'm I'm curious, where, where in the Philippines? In the south or? So we lived in Bataan and this like particular coastal region was in Marvelas, mm. which is mostly mountains. And then the edge of it um, goes into, I don't know what body of water. I'm assuming it's an ocean. I don't know. An island. Like, a yeah. sea, maybe. Sea. Yeah. That's a good assumption, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It all ends in the ocean. <laughs> then I started working for Dr. Chelsea Rockman, which is a pretty big name in microplastics at UFT. And then we did this work with the Ministry of Environment and Environment Conservation and Park. The so the, the MECP, the Government of Ontario, goes to that. they've gone through several name changes. So they used to be called the MECC and now they're called the MECP. Same organization. Yeah, we partnered up with them and we looked at the microplastic pollution in Lake Simcoe. So we went out there in this tiny little boat, they call it the Lake Simcoe Monitor, but it's like 12 feet boat that we went into the very wavy shores of uh, Lake Simcoe. And we collected like water and sediment samples there and then looked at how much microplastics there were in the lake and the sediments. And then tie that into what towns are around, what kind of industrial sectors are around. We also went by close to like the city of Barrie. I don't know if you're familiar. Yes. Um, so city of Barrie is several million people. And then we looked at like how different the plastics are with the waters that are close to that city versus the ones that are more in the middle. 
And it follows the same trajectory and trends that we see in other waters where you know, the more people you have close to a body of water you're sampling, the worse it is for microplastics. And that's bad, to say the least. <laughs> In my research, my, my very preliminary <laughs> research that was not done with Dr. Chelsea Rothman, I found out that microplastics are everywhere and they're in our bloodstream. And they found yeah. like microplastics inside of a placenta. Yeah, it's a big thing. When I started, there were all these research coming out saying, we found it here, we found it here, like all over the globe. And then the end sentence of like all these papers were something along the lines of, we know that it's everywhere, but why does it matter? You know, how is it affecting us humans? I mean, so they're always calling for research on how it's going to affect humans or organisms or whatever. I mean, and then now it's starting to come out, like they found it in the, in the lungs of um, some dead cadaver somewhere. And then they found it in the bloodstream. And yeah, like you said, the placenta. There was also this other uh, one. On the fetal side was, and the maternal side. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's it was, like it my, my one fact about yeah. microplastics. To yeah, like I was going to make your, the, the, that point where it wasn't obviously the fetus that was exposed to it, it was the mom that was exposed. And then they, they did that same study on rats where they exposed some rats to microplastics where they fed it through the water, I think. And then some were just a control that they didn't get any plastics. And they looked at the babies. Okay, those, okay, those rats. Wait, how do you know that the water that supposedly doesn't have microplastics in it actually doesn't have? So we do these things called blank samples, where you test all the things that, that you use, see how much plastics are in, things that you use. So it could be the tools that you use, like beakers, whatever. And then you can also test the water and the air, and you can have a general idea of what the baseline is. But even if it does have it even a little bit, you're still, the ones that you dose still has significantly more than for your baseline because you're using the same stuff. So anyway, these mice, right? They fed them plastic and their babies started having deformities if the parents had ingested plastics. And so I feel like in human history, we've always used mice as like a stepping stone for what we can infer about our own health. So they're saying, you know, if this is happening in mice. Yeah. Right. Oh my it's God. It's so concerning. It's plastic. Plastic is a vital part of our bright tomorrow. Soon we'll all be living in plastic houses. On the moon. <laughs> yeah, oh God. <laughs> um, so far, I feel like we've been um, using the term microplastics kind of interchangeably mm -hmm. because I feel like maybe it's good to say it's all microplastic because that's what it'll eventually become. So how has your relationship to plastics changed since you started doing research and do you still use plastic and when you do what are your feelings <laughs> compound question <laughs> oh yeah let's talk about feelings that's great so i ever since i started studying plastics i've definitely gotten more conscious about using plastics in my um, everyday life and it's the thing is with plastics and the reason why it's such a big problem is because it's so useful and it's often the best way to uh, you know handle things and to use for everyday products. But I've found I've been more mindful of what my things are made of and what their end of life cycle is going to be. My view on it is that plastics are so unavoidable in so many cases that the best thing that we can really do is to be mindful of um, the things that we use. So choosing reasonable plastic containers as opposed to like single use or that kind of stuff. And the thing that really irks me is, so I, I'm obviously Filipino and we're very big on holidays. And so like Christmas time, when that comes around, it's like all these non-reusable plastic things that are being given for packaging and, you know, to carry stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's really a battle for me to be like, I want to participate in the, the customs and whatever the holidays are, but it really hurts me to see all of this single-use stuff every day. Right. Bring stuff in containers, then nobody wants to do dishes, your big family. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a lot of plastic waste. Yeah, and I can definitely relate to that too, because I feel like a lot of the Filipino culture is like making food and sharing it with others. Like here's baon, which means lunch and stuff like that. And the titas and the titos are always putting saran wrap or putting it in a plastic bag. And it's just like, 
it's just part of the culture and also like a generational thing. I feel like I try yeah. to have a conversation with my aunties and they're just like, what do you mean? Plastic is so useful. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yes, but also, so it's tough. It's really tough. And I can relate to that. And also, I don't know, in a similar way, it's like, when I think about it, like in the clothes that I wear that I know is polyester and has plastics in it, how am I supposed to do that when I can't afford things that don't have plastic, right? So at the end of the day, it is really a systemic thing where it's like, give us options. Yeah, you bring up a good point. The options are definitely a big issue. And to that sense, I don't really blame Filipino culture because at the end of the day, they are still a developing country. And that's a big issue when we try to compare our ways and our standards of sustainability with that of a culture that is based on an economy that is so much less productive than ours as a Western country. I was talking to my sister about this the other day. I don't know if you were old enough uh, when you left the Philippines to know that when you buy pop or soda at a convenience store, they give it to you in a single use little plastic bag. They literally so, take it out of the container and put it and these exactly wait yeah. what i've always thought that it was an issue of they don't trust their you know patrons to return the bottles because you have a deposit with it and they reuse their bottles and cans mm. but they don't trust the patrons to give it back and they're expensive and for a little convenience store to to keep buying these cans or bottles it just doesn't makes sense but they, they can buy these single-use plastic bags for dirt cheap and then yeah. that's what they give to you right. so i don't know if, if you ever want to look it up it's hilarious what does yeah. it look like i'm gonna look it up on my phone right now it's like a clear plastic bag with a straw and then they I'll give capri sun but a single use at least capri sun i think is made out of aluminum, aluminum. yeah aluminum. so similar concept but not as elevated <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, it's, it's kind of sad that they have to do that. So they get the return on their bottles and their cans. That's the thing. It's a tricky conversation to be had when you look at the global south and the global north and the consumption of plastic and the production and how people are actually surviving in tandem with the use of plastic in certain places. Did you find a photo? No. Okay, I'll find one. Oh. <laughs> Oh my god. In their defense though, it does hit different. You know what it, <laughs> it it looks like oh god. Okay, maybe you don't smoke weed because <laughs> it is the devil's lettuce. <laughs> but you know like the lung, like people would cut off like a plastic bottle top and then put like a plastic bag with, oh, which like right, yeah. Which <laughs> is like horrifying to think about. But yeah, it kind of looks like that. So we're talking about single-use plastics because there are actually thicker plastics now, right? Water bottles, for example, they'll be thicker because then that's technically not single-use. And so now there's even thicker plastic being like single-use into landfills. So there's different kinds of plastics, right? And so now companies are getting around the no single-use plastics rule that we're sort of trying to establish by having thicker plastic in their items. How do you think that's going to, like, that's assuredly, no doubt, like, going to make things worse, right? We don't know. And I, oh! I think them being thicker allows us as a society to plan better around reusability and trying to prolong the lifespan of these plastics and making it take longer for them to end up in um, the environment and hopefully to not end up in the environment at all. But I think using higher quality materials allows us to do that. Whereas if it's like a flimsy little thing that when a plastic bag breaks, its usefulness kind of really depreciates. Yeah. We're setting ourselves up for success about whether or not we actually follow through and have the system set up to make its lifespan like longer and actually have the system set up to recycle it or um, reuse it or turn it into better and more other usable things. That's a different question entirely. And I think that second part is harder to achieve than the first one. It's easier for companies to switch over to thicker materials than it is for 
let's say, a city or an entire province set up a system where we can actually make use of these better materials. That takes a lot of political will, and that's kind of hard to come by. Political will. That's a good way of putting it, for sure. Because, yeah, we could talk about the infrastructure that needs to happen until we're blue in the face, but it's really whoever... (laughs) whatever politician is gonna put aside their ego to make it work and this kind of leads me into i heard that instead of recycling microplastics because they do collect somewhere in theory right instead of recycling those bits of plastic to make like bigger bits of plastic new plastic is being made is that true? <laughs> Those are two separate questions, I think. The hard part about microplastics and whenever we do collect them from the environment, it is a big thing. We are very bad at collecting microplastics in general. There's not a lot of things set up for us to collect microplastics. So in terms of what's out in the environment, we're not very good at collecting them and turning them into something else. But also when we do research, a lot of the research that's being done with microplastics or that use microplastics. Some researchers do it with environmentally sourced plastics. They would collect it from the environment and then use those for their research. But also because research is so finicky and the publishing process, it's under heavy scrutiny. So you want your results to be attributed directly to the plastic polymer itself and not anything else that's like out in the environment. So those are two different things. So when we do these research things where we want to prove that the effects that we're seeing are from the plastic itself, we have to use what we call virgin or unused plastic. You're a virgin who can't drive. It's typically made for, you know, research. And so that part, I've always kind of like, I understood the need for it. And that's what I'm using right now for my research. It is absurd the carbon footprint that we tack on when we use these virgin plastics. Because the ones that we have, it's it's expensive. So I bought a 0.1 gram vial of microplastics and I had to source it from the US. And that one tiny vial cost us like $600. That's so crazy. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, not to mention how much carbon footprint we had to ship it all the way here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Thank you, yeah. capitalism. Yet again. Yeah. To add on to that issue, so we're trying to, or I'm to get away from using those virgin plastics. I mean, as much as I understand their value and why they're useful for research, and obviously I have my own reasons as to why I was using those to begin with. We're trying to get away from using that because what's the value of understanding what the effects of the polymer is when? The animals that I'm researching, when they encounter these plastics out in the wild, they don't encounter them as virgin plastics. They encounter them as plastics that have had environmental you know, degradation. or degradation or whatever it is. Like they've experienced being out there. So why don't we use the ones that are out there? I mean, obviously, if you're studying fish from Costa Rica, which is what I do, that means if you want to be environmentally relevant, you want to get plastics that are from the waters that they're in. Oh my god! Of, what's the point of using environmental plastics from, let's say, the Saint Lawrence? Yeah, they don't contain the same toxins and environmental conditions that are out there in Costa Rica. That's kind of where it's hard to manage because, for it to be actually relevant, it has to be from the source of the waters where your fish are coming from, which is not often easy to do. Right. I'm just curious. Maybe just give us a preview, but like, how is it looking for the fish right now? That. Uh. You're researching. Based on like preliminary data, and this could very well change as we get more. But we are seeing some weird changes in their growth and development if they've had a lot of plastic. And we're not sure yet what mechanism happens inside them that makes them grow less or forage somewhat differently. So that's still to be determined. And hopefully that's something we figure out. But yeah, they're getting affected. (laughs) To put it mildly. You've been referring to plastics as polymer throughout this interview. And so what is the difference or what is the reason why you call it polymer? Because we know that plastic is man-made, but yeah. what is it? <laughs> well, plastics, the reason why I refer to them as, you know, these different polymers is because there's a chemical and a physical aspect to plastics. And we know that they each one has their own separate 
effects on organisms. So when you talk about the polymers, I'm talking about the building blocks of these plastics. So when we recycle stuff, um, when we recycle plastics, we separate them based on polymer. And so I'm talking about polyethylene, polypropylene, you know, PT, those are the polymers. And so when we use virgin microplastics, those specific building blocks, we know that depending on what the building blocks are, they can have different effects on the organisms. So that's why it's important to do virgin microplastics first before you take on the other chemical side of things where they can absorb toxins from the environment and those have a different effects as well. And that's why I talk about them that way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they could absorb any number of things from our environment that you don't necessarily want to be testing for or interfering with your research, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. So I want to shift a little bit to talk about the work that you're doing. I feel like we already talked a little bit about it, but you collaborated with CP3 to generate research grade microplastics. And so tell me a little bit about that process and how it's going. Yeah. So when I first started with um, Mayor, the Sustainability Ambassadors Program, Meredith is great, by the way. Um, shout out, yeah, Meredith. Yeah, shout out, Meredith. <laughs> we stand. You should have known I was lying because I will ge- I will do anything to bring up Meredith. Anything. <laughs> so the issue that we had with virgin microplastics that I mentioned, high carbon footprint, expensive, that kind of thing. We tried to work around that by making our own plastics that we can use for our research And so the main difference between environmentally sourced and virgin microplastics is the degradation that happens and the irregular shapes and these environmental toxins that are absorbed by the plastics. So we try to get rid of that. So what we do is, so CP3 collects plastics from campus and they break it down and they turn it into other materials. They do earrings and chairs and other fun stuff. Do you think they can do acrylic nails? I wouldn't say it's impossible. I don't know enough about nails. Yeah, I'm like, it sounds like know. hygienic, maybe. Because, okay, my thing is the acrylic nails are single use. But I feel like if we took like bread clips or like those kind of plastics, we could just mold them into little acrylic nails. You can, you can mold it. You can make shapes. But I think the hardest part of it is curving them to mm-hmm. fit the shape of the nail. Like you can build the squares of the shape of it. But to curve it, you would have to do it individually and heat it individually. And I'm finding it hard to see kind of an efficient way to do a lot of it. I mean, you can absolutely do like a set and it's fine. Anyway, so part of their process is they clean the plastics and they shred it to turn into little pellets that they turn into 3D printing material or whatever it is that they use to like make these other products. But in the process of shredding, there's a lot of microplastics that just get wasted or get put in a bin that's not being used. Mm. And so that's where I came in, where I collected these microplastics from their shredding process. The shredding process of making like 3D printing filament? Yes. Well, that's yeah, just so too. That's why the people at CP3 are awesome because they use this great material to yeah, replace something so expensive. Yeah, the people there are great. So anyway, I come in, I collect the microplastics and I wash them. So I remove all these like toxins that we don't want. Do you have to be under a microscope scraping it off? No, actually we borrow a um, sonicating machine. So a sonicator is, I don't know if you're familiar, but it's, it's like a little rod that emits sonic waves. So you put your plastics in a solution of whatever cleaning solution you want. So we usually use ethanol, put it in there and then sonicate it so that the agitate the plastic so that the toxins get released and cleaned by the ethanol. So we solved that like problem with sonication. What kind of toxins are we trying to get rid of when you guys do this process? We don't know. So all of the things really. So that's, that's the bad thing when you go out into the environment, you don't necessarily know what's out there per se, unless you test for it specifically. So I do not, it's not that bad. Okay. It's also in the water. Like, as long as I don't drink it, I feel like it's fine. I wear a lab coat. But, okay, okay. Yeah. You wear a lab coat and you're in the water with your lab coat? Wading through the not water? Not in the water, not in the water, no. Oh, okay. I was like, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean. That's a statement. Yeah. The <laughs> microorganisms that are feasting on the plastic. You're like, I'm here and I'm in uniform and I'm helping you. <laughs> <laughs> it's so a lot of labs 
even wear brightly colored lab coats. So it's not your typical white. When we study microplastics, a lot of um, our problems come from cross-contamination. So obviously fibers from your clothes are also microplastics. A lot of researchers use brightly colored, weird looking or easy to spot fibers so that when they find it in their samples, they're like, oh, that's fiber from my lab coat. I don't need to count that one kind of thing. It's like the Technicolor dream coat. It's like rainbow colors and it's bedazzled. No, I wish. Mine's just plain white. I haven't gone around to dyeing my lab coat. I should though. What color? Mine's (laughs) white. Oh, what am I going to dye it? Yeah, what color are you going to dye it? I don't know. I'm taking suggestions. You could do color block. Oh my God. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. Hi, 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 yes. Oh, oh God. God. You should. So you want it to be one solid color. Okay. See, plastic. Plastics are ruining everything. Seriously. Like... No, brightly colored lab coats ain't so bad. Yo, yeah, Imagine that's what pulling up in, in a bright pink. <laughs> like the wiggles or <laughs> what are some other I don't even have a toddler. I don't know why that was the first like thing that I thought about. Yeah. I have some offshoot questions because you're a plastics expert. Yeah. And I've been in the fashion thinking about fashion for the past ever. And I saw this research that came out a couple years ago, and the fashion industry was like, oh my God, this is gonna save us. And apparently there's a bacteria found in the ocean that eats plastics right workers in japan are growing it like what's your take on this at first i was like this is cool but also feels weird i have heard about it i didn't i didn't read enough about it to know what it does so i think i'm just off of what you said i mean i think the biggest issue is what does it it has to turn into something what does it turn it into so the, the things that usually are problems are it's not breaking down the plastic. It's what we release into the environment when we break it down. Technically, we could just burn down all the plastics and we would get rid of all the plastics. But mm-hmm. the consequence of doing that is much worse than just having the plastics to begin with. Right. Whether or not the plastics or the bacteria turns it into something that's kind of inert and maybe even usable, then that's a big thing there. So you're basically saying that like, well, to extract what you've said, do not burn your plastics. <laughs> it will get rid of it. Whatever you do, yeah. But at the behest of our entire planet. So do not burn your plastics. Tip number one. So, okay, it's like very science fiction-y, don't you think? If we had an enzyme that could eat, like, or like a bacteria that could eat all the plastic, what would we do with that that enzyme? Like, what if it takes over? And sorry, I'm in a science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Is it a sentient? Enzyme? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Dora! You're the one with the map! Don't ask me! No, that wasn't a real question. (laughs) It's just crazy to me to think, okay, we have this enzyme that could technically eat up all the plastic or turn it into something better. If it was a being and it ate the plastic and it could turn it into natural matter, right? I just think of also the short film that we watched for the episode previous to this, the plastic bag that was floating through the wind, voiced by Warner Herzog. He was saying, I wish that you had created me so that I could die. So I do think of the material, all of the crap that we're putting into our oceans and our earth and our atmosphere, that it's like, why did we even pick plastic? Do you have like a microplastics role model? Maybe you had an adult in your life who was constantly reusing plastics, or maybe you knew an adult who had a creative use for a plastic that you don't really think about. For example, in the third grade, I had a teacher and she had a reward system that if you had a certain amount of, she called them bravos. And so if you had a certain amount of them, I went to French school as a reminder. So if you had a certain amount, you could buy things with it and she used bread clips. And so I always thought that was very ingenious of her because it's, we, get bread and then we have all these bread clips lying around what the heck do you do with bread clips besides like tying up your piece of bread so is there anyone in your life or have you seen any plastic usages that were really creative outside of your research that you were like dang wish i'd thought of that i can't say i have but my family's always been big on reusing things like my dad is borderline close to hoarding as like you just like we refuse to throw things away because we want to believe that we can use it again so that's a habit i've like picked up over the years and i'm glad i have a fairly sizable apartment because of all the stuff that's i'm like i refuse to throw this away but i would say in terms of the role model aspect dr you know rockman has actually been that figure for me so i've 
believe heavily in you know turning our work into policy and things that actually matter and actually make changes. And so she's a person that I see that's really doing that. The microplastics word. Yes. So who's this professor? I worked for her in my undergrad. Like she works at the University of Toronto. Yeah. In my undergrad, I bounced from different labs, see where I wanted to be in. So, and eventually I found my way to her lab and realized that plastics was the way to go. And that's where I wanted to make my impact in the world. But yeah, it really took seeing how much there is to still study about plastics and how much work there is still to do for me to realize that that's where I want to be. How many labs did you work at? Is that typical? You can go one of two ways. Some people like stick to one lab and they really like what they're doing and but they make really good connections to that lab and then they stay there for their undergrad thesis, their master's, their PhD. But the other way is like you bounce around until you find like what you're actually looking for, especially as someone that you have decided that research is what they want to and but you don't know what kind of research it is that you want to do yet. Um, so that's me where I went into like community ecology and like plant evolution and bouncing around these labs until you figure out what specific field you want to be in and then going around and figuring that out. I think it's a lot more stressful than just being in one and sticking to it, but it also allows you to have this like breadth of experience that's not necessarily always good, but it's not bad. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you had all the money in the world, what would be the end goal of your research? My end goal would likely be to set up a way to get rid of, you know, the existing plastic pollution in not just the oceans, but like in most of the environments or the ecosystems. Um, So I'm talking like freshwater also. So when we talk about plastics in the environment, we often like think of the ocean, but it's just as big a problem in freshwater as it is in the ocean. And it's a big thing in Canada because we rely heavily on freshwaters and the majority of the freshwaters in the world and it impacts us a lot more when we, you know, take out the, fr- the plastics in the in freshwater system. So taking that out is a big goal of mine. And then having all the money in the world, you get to influence, as bad as it sounds, you get to influence like policies and politics uh, in general, putting people in place to achieve my goals would be ideal and one of those goals would also be to foster a circular economy for the plastics that we use. Because I really don't believe that we need to get rid of plastics and the usage of plastics. Like, I think it is a useful tool and it's brought our technologies to like levels that we couldn't have achieved without plastics. So it's not all bad, although we do need to be better at reusing it and making it sustainable so that we don't end up having so much of it that we have to release it to our environment. But yeah, that's what I would do. Noble, noble goal. (laughs) Play the lottery and support you in this. Yeah. I would round up all the billionaires and inject them (laughs) with plastic. Okay, there's plastic in your bloodstream now and you have to pay me to get it out. Yeah, I mean, I think the more achievable goal is to just have a lab of my own that has a lot of funding because I think that can achieve a lot and the thing is with the way that the canadian system for academia is set up funding is hard to come by Um, i mean there's this whole other issue of the most prestigious postdoctoral funding in canada which is the insert postdoctoral fellow so mm -hmm. literally the top tier funding source for postdocs the amount of funding that you get for that to be in a university or whatever conduct your research it pays just over living wage and that's the most prestigious in Canada. So there's this whole issue going on and it's all over social media of like, why are we not supporting these people yeah. that are actively trying to like make research that's trying to improve the lives. And yeah, I mean, funding is such a big issue. You know, it's funny when it rains, it pours. They got money for wars, but can't feed the poor. Fun fact about NSERC, I was involved in this project doing research to turn expired milk into textile. And we worked with this professor at Collège Montmorency. We developed the fiber from the milk and we needed to go do more, you know, research exploration on like the density, the flexibility. And so we applied to NSERC. And the prof at this college was like, yeah, like it's a difficult process, but usually they'll grant some money. So we applied twice. The first time we got denied and I called the general manager that was giving the 
grants or whatever. And I found his number online and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call. I called and he picked up and was so confused because I'm not affiliated with any university. (laughs) I'm not a researcher. I'm just like a quote unquote entrepreneur. And I was like, so why didn't we get the money? And he was like, I'm sorry, who are you? What school are you affiliated with? He was like, out of the 10 years I've been working here, no one has ever called me. That's not from a school. And basically was just as with many grant applications, giving you the runaround. And I'm just like, we just want to try and take the excessive waste of milk in this province and turning into something else. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, it's like with any industry, whether it comes to science, fashion, whatever, the people that are giving you the money need to know that you're going to be able to give it back to them tenfold. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. research sometimes is just an exploration, right? What science is, you're exploring options and you need funding. So another track to F capitalism. Well, it's true. I always talk about abolition, but the everybody's always like, what about the statistics? Like the statistics say this. And it's like, well, first of all, who is out here doing research on the most marginalized communities? <laughs> who is out here funding that research? Definitely not like white supremacists in government. <laughs> so when we talk about statistics and research, it's like an argument we get a lot in abolition that's like, well, the statistics say this. And it's like, yeah, because nobody was checking for these other statistics, you know? So that's upsetting and frustrating and a resounding fuck capitalism. Yeah. I, I feel like so so many people have so many great ideas and actually propose solutions that are, have intention behind them, but it always comes down to the resources and yeah, it's tough out there. What's next for you? <laughs> Want to finish my master's and figure out, you know, how plastic are actually affecting the growth, development, whatever, cognition, all this fun stuff of like fish and figuring that out would be the short-term next step for me. I am looking at doing my PhD. I'm not sure where yet because I, I do still want to study microplastics, but whether or not I look at it more on a social and city-based aspect or stick more the biological side of it. So that's what I'm struggling with to make a decision for. And I think on one side, I'm an ecologist at heart. Like I, I want to know the biology of it and I want to know how it affects it internally and all that kind of stuff. But also I find that we're now working with Sustainable Concordia and having worked with these different, more practical organizations, it's a struggle of which side I want to be. When you're on the practice <laughs> of the decision, we'll invite you back. And go, well, what did you yeah. I have a question for you. Why microplastics? Why not bioplastics? Why not recycling plastics? What I'm studying? Yeah, I, I just say that because I dabbled. And, and by mm. that, I was just literally making stuff during the pandemic in my home from kitchen waste yeah. and was making quote unquote bioplastics, which I'm finding out is just a very broad term. So yeah, but there's so many ways that people tackle and think about plastics, what made you want to look into microplastics? I think in the beginning, it was more about how much of it there was. I, like bioplastics, you know, as they are, and they have their own issues, but they're not as big of a problem yet. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, it's a lot of like different kind of materials that resemble plastic but in their biggest selling point is that they don't take as long to biodegrade or get broken down there was this whole big issue of whether or not they're actually better than plastics because yeah let's say plastics take a few thousand years to degrade but this bioplastic takes a couple of hundred is, is that good enough a couple of hundred is still a long time when i started studying plastics microplastics was the big issue out there and so that's what drew me into it. And we do have a lot of microplastics. And- I need to go lie down in the dark and not think about the degradation of our planet. I think that's a common response. I think whenever I read any microplastic research study, I feel slightly more depressed than before. But it's never good. So that leads me into a good question, actually, which is what do you do to stay positive while you're doing the research? And what do you do to kick back when you're not doing research? How do you even have a regular conversation with your friends knowing so much about microplastics 
you know? I think it's good that I'm surrounded by people who understand the existential dread of being in ecology and understanding the effects of climate change and pollution. I think there's this general understanding that it's kind of bad, that we're trying our best. And I think it's that mentality that keeps us going of like, we can't make it better if we're just sitting home doing nothing. So we might as well just try to make it better and trying to find ways to prove that it's bad so that we can convince people that it's bad so that they can make changes to make it better. It's a tough battle. I'm not saying it's, it's easy. There's several webinars and I think there's one ran at Concordia in the winter semester and they talk about how we deal with climate anxiety, which is now becoming more common. I think especially too with COVID and all these quarantines happening, we're given all of this extra time alone with their thoughts. And I think eventually some of those thoughts lead to the dread that came with the world going to shit, us trying to figure out where we land in the spectrum of, are we part of the problem or are we part of the solution? You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a good <laughs> and a bad. That you and your cohort and your fellow other researchers, it sounds like you're approaching it in, in this way of feeling almost like accepting, but hopeful. And I think, mm-hmm. um, It's important for everyone who's trying to make change in whatever field that you're in to remember that you can't save the planet just in your industry. We literally have to all do what makes us somewhat feel okay in our fields and then come together and enact these changes. There's people that do it in the cultural work. There's people that do it through storytelling, through healing, through science. In fact, seeing it as an interconnected environment species is what's really going to help us, I think. And for me, it makes me feel more like almost at ease to know that Miguel is doing this incredible research and I'm just going to cross my fingers and then I'm doing what I'm trying to do with design and I'm going to cross my fingers. Because then I feel like if we put too much pressure on all of us, it's just like, whoa, we inherited the world we live in. And Maria, you've talked about how you sometimes have anger about it. Like you'll just be going about your day and then it's just like steam out the ears. And so Miguel, do you also experience that? Because I feel like it is a problem that we inherited. I was not alive in the seventies to, (laughs) to create plastics. Yeah, for sure. I mean, microplastics that we find in the environment came from like plastics that it's not the plastic that we're putting out there it's the plastics that have been put out there like decades ago like the process it takes a while for it to break down and become microplastics so a lot of our issues are coming from stuff that was put out there by our parents or grandparents but you know what can you do it's it's out there and the best thing you can really do is try to find ways to get rid of it Speaking of getting rid of it, there's this awesome program called the Seabin Project where they put these little pumps out in coastal regions and docks. It's mostly in cities. I know there's one in Toronto. I think there's a couple in Golden State and San Diego. But essentially, they look like tiny garbage bins, but it's a pump that skims the top or the waterline. And there's a mesh that collects microplastics at the bottom. Very cool. Very Whoa. Cool. Oh, like a giant skimmer. That's go- okay. Cool. Yeah. And you went to a Catholic school, right? This part's not, doesn't have to co- go in the podcast. Um, but you went to a Catholic school, right? And so I'm assuming you've read Bible to an extent, right? Sure. Okay. I'm, I'm also like from a Christian household. So, okay. Love that. Hey. Catholic. Um, me too. I'm an Irish Catholic. So there's a passage in the Bible about not mixing fabrics. Do you think that they were talking about plastics? <laughs> I've learned that the Bible, that it should serve you how you want it to serve you. Mm. So I would like to believe that. Yes. Yes. Sure. Well, first of all, through God, all things are possible. So jot that down. (laughs) I mean, no, because like, really, I was thinking about it because the idea is, oh, you're not supposed to mix fabrics, but why wouldn't God want you to use natural things to create other things, right? If you're making a garment and you want to use cotton for the sleeves and wool for the bodice, you should be able to do that, right? But then plastics are technically unnatural, right? And so maybe God's like, I don't like that. And that's why we're in hell. Yeah, you know, I mean, if everything was like entirely cotton or entirely wool, so much better for us. None of that nylon stuff. Oh my God. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I hope that I did not cause you to blaspheme or say anything sacrilegious. 
Um, no, I just like was thinking about that. Like, dang, maybe that's what the Bible meant. Um, yeah. Speaking of, can, I just want to ask, sorry, uh, Maria. So, what's do you know a good non-classic alternative to active wear? It's honestly, it's impossible because a lot of the bands is made from plastic. What's lycra? Is that a plastic? It's a mix, I believe. And I feel like I'm not a textile expert, but I remember in the episode with Nadia, I feel like she went into it. Well, it's spandex, right? So it's like, yeah. What's the difference between spandex and like lycra then? I think spandex is like, lycra is a brand maybe? We used to have to wear lycra swimsuits when we were competing. My friend messaged me the other day and she went to a hotel that had decompostable bathing suits whoa oh, oh. like they're paper right so it, it can't be paper she didn't give me details on how it's made but what interests me is the elastic around it so that's usually the problem you have to separate the cotton from the elastic you can't make something that's stretchy and repels the water unless other different techniques but as you can see that's a very limited scope of design you know what i mean so- yeah and how long does it take to decompose like does it break apart when you get in the water line yeah when you wear it <laughs> right right okay you go in there with bathing suit and you come out nude definitely not good for um skimming microplastics out of fresh water <laughs> keep that in but- mind But actually, the chemist researcher that we were working with, she was thinking of creating this spray that we could put on the fabric that would make it repellent to water. And what's cool about it is that she was thinking about how silica, not the beads, but in the ocean, they're naturally hydrophobic and it can exist because a lot of the active wear too that we use, even if it's made from natural ingredients, they spray a lot of stuff that makes it repellent. And, oh God, fashion is just so problematic. And now on top of greenwashing, it just never ends. Additives are a big thing too in microplastic research because we add so much garbage into our plastics before we use it to achieve the quality that we want. From our plastic so we add a lot of what we call plasticizers which make it more flexible or more rigid depending on what we want and sometimes like flame retardant or i mean yeah, like you said like even more hydrophobic so those are things too and we know that in terms of the biological side of it those additives alone can have greater effects than the plastics itself right and then that leads into when we do use natural fibers if we add all of this plasticizers and additives to it that make it just as bad as the plastic fibers then is it really any better? We need to find natural solutions to like problems that we fixed with toxins. And to be honest, we don't have to look that far. Nature, no. nature mm-hmm. is like the grand design. The million dollar question is how much money can it make us? You know what I mean? There's always that. Yeah. Nature is real. Money is fake. Exactly. And <laughs> see. <Fancy. I'm> like- <laughs> <laughs> I just have one more question and it's kind of a downer, but obviously there's been an increase in plastic usage every day for us as we have adjusted to wearing masks during the pandemic. And so I'm going to open the space up for a little bit of eco grief. If we want to talk about (laughs) masks daily, I just wear masks, even if I'm just going for a walk with my dog, because if somebody comes up to me, I don't want to be breathing into their mouths. They don't want to be breathing into mine. People still look at me funny. People still will stop me and be like, oh, you don't have to wear a mask. And I'm like, bro, you have your dogs off a leash on Rachel. Like, the street why would i listen to you yeah so i ended up we ended up calculating that i would use technically if i take my dog on three walks a day 21 masks a week yeah which i'm not doing that i will take him out at a later time where i'm sure i'm not going to see anyone so i'm walking my dog at midnight (laughs) and i'm using side streets and ducking and then i'll do wide berth around anybody that i see but so i guess my question is what are we going to do about that have you noticed any ways that it has impacted your research to have to wear masks in your everyday? And then again, another compound question, but in your everyday, how do you rationalize wearing masks, even though they Yeah, yeah. What I used to do, and still to some extent, so like, I find a lot of comfort in like wearing a mask still. So, but I realize now that I can fulfill that comfort with using reusable masks. I'm good at like washing it. So I have a stack of like reusable masks at home that I cycle through 
throughout the week and then wash. Going on a walk with your dog, you'll use a reusable mask. But if you're going into a grocery store, you'll use like a... Yeah, I only really use the uh, medical masks when, when I'm on campus because... We require those on campus. But for everything else, I just wear like my reusable mask. And But with the rise it, of Omicron, people are saying that it's like not as effective. No, definitely not. But I think to me, I'm comfortable enough. And to me, that was good enough. And this is bad to say, but I hope that when I do get it, and which I'm sure I will, that it's not so bad. But I don't want to belittle the hardships that like people who have had it and have gotten like bad things from it. I don't want to belittle their experience, but I'm hopeful that when I do end up getting it, it's, it's not as bad. In terms of the research, there's actually work done in, I think it's in Dalhousie University. There's uh, this professor, his name is Dr. Tony Walker. He's great. He's great. Follow him on Twitter. He has some good content. Dr. Tony Walker. He put out a research on about masks and the microplastics associated with masks and how they are in the environment. In, in the grand scheme of things, I think masks, as long as we have this proper system to collect it, and I don't know what happens to masks when they go into the recycling bin, because I know we have one at Concordia, like we have a lot of those mask collection bins, but I'm not sure that. Hey, this came up in our last episode, and yeah, like where are they recycling it to? Like, did they grow a factory that recycles masks and only Concordians can use it? And then yeah. you also have to cut the string when you throw out your mask so that birds won't choke on it and other living creatures that we want to protect. But how many Concordia students do you think are doing that? I don't know where those bins like end up, but I'm hoping, I'm putting my trust in our university to do what it's right for those masks. And hopefully they go in a place where they can be either reused or you know recycled for some purpose or another. Set into a call to action. Concordia <laughs> University, get it together. Please, just tell us where they go, please. Yeah. Transparent. Uh, there's also this professor in engineering and we use some of his facilities and that's why we got to talk to him so he worked with cement i think his argument was that the mask like increased the ph of water when it's on there so when you have masks on top of cement or fibers of the masks with cement like he's looking at what it's going to do to it it's interesting litter their masks everywhere okay that makes sense to me right because people just litter their masks everywhere and it's like cigarette butts they leach into the concrete and all the chemicals go into our water supply and it's just like nasty. So I could totally see masks having the same effect of leaching plastic. Okay, well, we are nearing the end of our time. So I want to thank you, Miguel, so much for coming on to our podcast and talking to us and answering some of my dumb questions and also some of my smart questions. Let me give myself credit. (laughs) Just so enlightening, like truly. And I'm grateful that there's people at Concordia that are thinking about the longevity of our planets. Exactly. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great. It's always nice to have a platform to talk about the work that I'm doing and Hopefully it didn't cause too much uh, sadness and, and grief. That's not what we want to do, but it's we, the message needs to be out there. And it. it's great that you guys have this platform. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I feel empowered by this conversation and I hope others- Part will. of it. It's part of it. Yeah. yeah. We have to exist with the grief and the hopefulness at the same time. I mean, we got to keep it real. Hey, one more times. At least there's a party. 